Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. If you've been with us over the last several weeks, months, years, we've been in Genesis chapter 1. Um, Today, we are pressing a pause button on Genesis chapter 1. It will be finished up in the next three weeks as we go into Thanksgiving. So it's like three more weeks in Genesis 1. But today, um, because I am speaking, we get to do something different. And uh, I want to invite you into a little bit of just a moment. Um, We're going to talk about neighboring this morning and a little bit of how it's a lost art. But also, I want to talk to you just briefly and sit in it for just a moment. It, it feels oftentimes like our world has disintegrated into violence. And um, with what happened at Maine, what is happening over in Israel and Gaza, what's happening between Russia and Ukraine, and what's happening with Syria, and what's, yeah, I, that list is always pretty long. And what happens a lot of times is we just kind of get numb to that. We just hear, oh, it's just another thing. It's just another thing. But for us, uh, at least for me, um, trying to, I'm trying to fight against the numbness that comes with repeated information of violence, um, especially when it's hit so close to home here in, in Nashville. But um, if you would join me just for a moment to center yourself, put your feet on the floor, do what you need to do, take a deep breath, close your eyes. I'd just like to pray over that. And, uh, and invite you into that for just a moment. Take a deep breath. Jesus, we step into your presence And as we do that, as we draw near, um, may we be people of compassion. And also may we be be people who bring heaven with us. When you stepped into this world, you brought with you compassion like we've never seen. You brought mercy and sacrifice. You turned what was power upside down. And we live in a world that just misses the point. Where power is rooted in violence. And Jesus, I just want to pray for all the people that have been affected in Maine and around the world with the latest shootings in our country, the wars that are going on in Israel, Gaza, Syria, Russia, Ukraine, and all the loss of life, all the families that are broken, all the hurt injury, 
been inflicted. And pray for us as, as your followers, not just here but around the world, that we would embody what it means to bring heaven to those situations. That we would bring compassion and mercy and grace, presence. We pray for you to be very present. We know you are, but I pray that you're seen and experienced and known. And Lord, as we feel these things as just humans, as we watch, it's part of our nature to try to figure out how to not feel it. But as we feel it, may we know that you bring peace, you bring shalom, you bring remedy to the brokenhearted. We pray for your action in this. I pray that we would partner with you in ways that make sense and that you would, you would be the answer to the question for our own souls and our hearts. Thank you for the few moments that we can just in unison sit and know and feel and entrust it to you. It's in your hands we place it, in Jesus' name, amen. So today, um, I'm gonna ask you to be curious. I'm gonna talk about something very, very familiar. And whenever I do this, it's always a challenge to keep you engaged. And uh, so I just want you to kinda park your preconceived ideas about what I'm about to talk about. <laughs> And join me in being curious about yourself, about the story, about um, what it means to be a good neighbor. And so I've had a, I had a couple weeks to think about it, and so I, I went fishing on the internet. Ever do that? Don't do it that often. But, um, <clears throat> and so I basically asked the question, how do I know if I'm a good neighbor or not? And I got a couple of good quotes that I liked. One of them was from Robert Frost. He said, good fences make good neighbors. <laughs> yes, there's some truth to that. And then a good neighbor is a fellow who smiles at you over the back fence but doesn't climb over it. Arthur Bear. Um, yeah, I just need a larger fence. So those are just a couple of, you know, oh, okay, just to gently move you into this, but I went deeper. I went, I went further. I actually hit up Google this time and it brought me to a lovely website, which is an HOA management site. Um, it's called Down, uh, Town Square IO. I don't even, I've never even heard of that as a address, but he, this was a list of tips for being a good neighbor. Good neighbors are friendly, just so you know. Um, Good neighbors are helpful. Good neighbors are trusting. What they meant by trusting, they expounded on this. Trusting neighbors have their neighbor's best interest at heart. They treat their neighbor's home and family as if it was their own. I, I really thought it was funny that they had to spell this out. Okay, the next one, good neighbors are respectful. And the last one, good neighbors are considerate of noise. And you're all going, amen, amen. 
Well, something came in the mail for me this week. It, it was my property taxes. And um, you know how you open property taxes things and you go, oh yeah. But I live in Davidson County and um, in Davidson County, they send along a little, a little card that says, how to be a good neighbor. And so I thought you'd be interested in what the, the county of Davidson property believes makes for a good neighbor from Davidson County Metro Property Standards Code. Cut your grass, people. It's, it's part of being a good neighbor. Second, don't park your car on the grass, especially non-functioning cars. No, I have it right here. Somebody came up and said, let me see that. I, well, living in Davidson County, if you get your property taxes in the mail, this is, you get this, so you're aware. Yard areas should not have junk, like trash, washers and dryers, and other appliances, just so you know. Don't leave your washer and dryer in the yard. Dilapidated, see, I would not write this. I would not make dilapidated structures should be removed. That, yeah. Fences should be well-maintained. And then there was the last one, and I, and I failed to give Dave this one, but it is, don't fight with your neighbors. <laughs> How to be a good neighbor. Don't you find it interesting that culturally, HOA associations, government, feels the need to pass along the rules of good neighboring? I do. I find it really funny. Most of this is pretty intuitive, but yet somehow, someway, somewhere along the line, somebody felt the need to let us know this is what good neighboring is. Do you feel informed? No, you already do this. This is not new information. This is, this is like, well, yeah, I'd, I'd appreciate it if my neighbor cut their yard, so well, I probably should cut mine. I'd appreciate it if my, my neighbor wouldn't leave their washer and dryer out in their backyard. So I keep mine in the house. You know, simple things. But yet, we get to be informed. And so with that, this is an ongoing conversation that actually took place in the Bible, which I find fascinating. And, and there's this day where um, a lawyer arrives on the scene and starts talking to Jesus about neighboring. It's found in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. You're going to know the story. And again, I ask you to be curious. I ask you to look inside. I ask you to join me in this adventure without the preconceived idea of where you think this is going. Okay? Everybody's with me. One person is. On one occasion, an expert in the law, a lawyer, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Great question. Jesus replies, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. We all know that one. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. We're gonna camp on this next verse. This next verse is great. But he wanted to justify himself. So we hear motive. We hear something in him stirred, something that prompted the next question. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? 
just for a moment. I need you to sit in that. I need you to kind of go, okay, why ask that question? What is behind it? What is, what is involved with wanting clarification? Because he's got clarification. They agree. Jesus and the lawyer agree. Two greatest commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. It's all over the Bible. It's all over the Old Testament. It is, we're in agreement. So why now clarification? Why take the next step? Why does he need clarity on neighbor? It's rhetorical, although I'm sure many of you are going, I don't know. Is there another way to ask that question? It seems like the question, the obvious question, with an obvious answer to me, because the lawyer would not ask a question that he doesn't know the answer to. The lawyer asked Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? He knew the answer, and he knew what the right answer was, and he figured that they would agree. And so he knows the right answer to this question, and he's expecting the right answer. And the right answer from a good Israeli Jewish mindset is it's the people of the covenant of Israel. Those are my neighbors. It's the people that are part of our community that have committed to our God. When we talk about this, when we talk about neighboring, that's the right answer. And so that's the answer he's expecting. And so, and so when he sits and asks the question, he wants to justify how he's been neighboring, right? Maybe. Is he trying to ask the question in such a way that it traps Jesus? No. This question is so that it doesn't trap him. He's moved off of trapping Jesus to trapping himself. And which usually happens, Jesus asks more questions, but he also tells a story. But before we get there, I wanna just speculate with you for just a second. Why ask the question if you already know the answer? What is it that he's trying to hedge a little bit? What is it that he's trying not to do? I think when we ask questions, oftentimes that is the implication behind it. We all have our limitations. We all have capacity. We all have things that we would go, yeah, I think there's a limit to what I can and cannot do for my neighbor. And so if I can limit the amount of neighbors I have to a manageable amount, I would feel better about myself and I would have the answer to the question of how do I get into heaven? So behind this question is probably this question. Is it okay for me to consider some people not my neighbor?
Well, part of what is wrapped up in the answer to the first question is this connection, this undeniable connection between loving God and loving our neighbors. And it's, it continues throughout the Bible. And as it does, there is this conclusion that we come to is that somehow, some way, there is, as, as I love God, it affects the way that I interact with and trust people, interact and love people, interact and have mercy with people, all of the things. Because a lot of that is reflected in, in the way that I have relationship with God. And so as I love God, I usually will see that carry out in how I love people. And how I understand this relationship with God will often carry out into how I treat people. And so in, in 1 John 4, 19 through 21, we get a, 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 a more robust look at this, at this idea. He said, we love because he first loved us. So there's this connection. Our love is born out of his love. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar, saying you really don't love God. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have seen, have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So Jesus tells this parable. And this parable, you all know, it gets quoted in secular life as well as it does in Christian life. Um, but I need you to sit with it fresh today. And I want you to, if you're willing, um, even if you're not, uh, to take a moment, close your eyes. I want to read the story as you imagine it happening, but not imagine it, it happening from the vantage point of Jesus or the lawyer, or imagine it happening from the vantage point of the Good Samaritan, or the guys that walk by, I want to invite you into experiencing the story from the position of the victim. Because the story is actually told from the perspective of the victim. Okay? So I need you to kind of put aside some presuppositions, pre, um, previous conclusions, and allow the story to be felt. Not just in your mind, but in your heart. Okay? Everybody good? And if you don't want to close your eyes, I'm fine. I, I'm not going to disappear or anything, so it's good. So Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 30. So this guy asks him, who's my neighbor? And Jesus replies, he said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho where he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Okay, keep your eyes closed. I just want to put you in that spot. I want to uh, put you on the side of the road. You've been beaten. Everything you have is stolen. Your clothes are all gone, and you're half dead. There's nothing on you anymore to identify what tribe you're from, or whether you're Jewish, or Gentile, or Samaritan. There's nothing identifiable about you. And you are in desperate need of help. You cannot help yourself. Okay, that's where you are. That's the story. That's the perspective by which we are going to walk through this. A priest 
happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Okay, you're the victim. You're half dead. Help is coming. You see it coming. You lock eyes. He goes to the other side of the road and keeps walking. What do you feel in that moment? Where are you now? Hope is dashed. This road isn't that busy. What if no one else comes? Jesus continues the story. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side, it happens again. Desperation sets in. Fear grips you. I might die here alongside the road. But a Samaritan, just that word, as a Jewish victim alongside the road, brings up emotion. Oh no. Fear. My enemy is now here. Someone I hate has arrived. Is he going to further my harm? As he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. So something different in the eyes of the Samaritan sparks something. Is there hope? Will he help? Should I receive his help? It's a lot happening in this story for the victim. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for the, any extra expense you, have, you may have. Sit there for just one more second with me as you hear the story through the vantage point of being that person. You've been rescued by your enemy. Somebody extended mercy. Somebody had compassion. Somebody was generous. You were saved. Okay. Just wanted to feel it in a different way. And Jesus says to the lawyer, 
which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? <laughs> the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Oftentimes the focal point when I was growing up was on the two men that walked by. Um, and the propensity to identify with the men who walk by. I'm not sure that's the point of the story. All of us walk by. All of us are those two people. All of us are the victim. All of us are in need of help. All of us at some point or time along the way are the Good Samaritan. We're the guy that stops. But we're still asking the same question. Who's my neighbor? Who's the one that I actually have to stop for? Who is the one that I need to actually help to be on the right side of the equation? And what we naturally do, and I am guilty of this on so many levels, and so I'll tell on myself a few different ways today. But as, as I go through life and as I get older and I begin to recognize my own prejudices and my own ability to be able to justify my behavior, I begin to recognize themes throughout my life. I begin to recognize, oh yeah, I, I could walk by somebody like that and justify it. One of my, one of my, um, <laughs> full pause in life, my um, blind spots, people would call them, my uh, self-justification is found in this idea that if somebody, and I, and I can hear my dad saying it in my head, okay, there is a, this is, and so I come by it honestly, you could say, it's still not right, but I come by it honestly, is that if somebody makes a bad choice on purpose, they need to sit in it. They need to live in it, and they need to experience the fullness of it. So I have a hard time having compassion for somebody who makes a bad choice. Now, the hypocrisy of that is dripping. But my dad would say, and I remember asking him for help at one point in my life. I was, I was a little older I needed some help, and he said, you made a bad decision. You're gonna have to live with it. I'm not helping. Okay. And it reinforced in me this idea of there are people you just don't help. How does that sit with you? Where does that 
put you. See, when I, as I got older and I began to understand the gospel, as I got older and understood how the gospel applied to me and how I understood how God stepped into this world when he didn't have to, and he stepped into a world with people who make stupid choices every day, bad choices, erroneous choices, even choices that hurt other people. You got the list. The list is I've made all of those choices in my life, and so have you. And God steps in to that, experiences the brunt of all that, experiences what it's like for people to make bad choices that affect him, and yet what we see over and over and over again, when heaven enters into those moments, there is compassion, there is grace, there is mercy, there is action on behalf of the one who made a bad choice. He doesn't just make people sit in it. He rescues And so we, we find ourselves trying to justify why we are willing to withhold heaven from people. I know I do, because it makes me feel better. It makes me okay with myself. I don't feel it as deeply if I can. It's, it's the moment in time, like... Um, do y'all drive? Do you drive around Nashville? Have you pulled up to a stop sign and had somebody standing there with a sign? Only me? No, really, have you? Y'all experienced this, right? What do you do, right? I very seldom carry cash with me. And so sometimes what pops through my mind is do you take Venmo? But in the moment, if I have no means by which to help them, what do I do? And oftentimes what I find myself doing is looking away. Okay, I'm telling on myself again. And then in that moment I realize I've doubled, I've doubled down. I pretend they don't exist. I become one of the people that walks by on the other side of the road, right? I become that person that says, I saw it, I'm gonna pretend it's not there and I'm just gonna keep walking. And I know exactly where your heart goes now. I can't help all these people. I don't have enough money, I don't have enough time and I don't have enough resources. I get that. I'm in that same boat. But what I'm learning to do is see them, acknowledge them. Make sure they know that you know they're human and there's dignity in that as opposed to just pretending they don't exist. Even if there's nothing physical I can do, I find myself now to going, okay, I'm gonna look at them. I'm gonna catch their eye. I'm gonna smile at them. I'm gonna acknowledge their existence. Well, they may walk over to my window and ask me for money. They do. And I say, I'm really sorry. I don't have any money. 
I just wanted you to know I saw you. And they say thank you. It's entering into the moment with what I had. I don't know if you all listen to Journey Now podcast. If you do, I'm sorry, dear listener. Um, and over the last few weeks, we've been talking about my dental issues. And, I, uh, and I've, I'm in the process of getting a crown on one of my teeth. Anybody here ever have that wonderful experience? Well, it gets drawn out, which I didn't know. But anyway, so I had to go back and get my permanent crown put on which is so iron. There's so much irony in that. So the place that I go is, is in, a, in, a, um, in Nashville. It's on a corner where there is a um, homeless community. And um, when I arrived, I pulled in. I got there at the time of my appointment. And I sit down in the waiting room, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting. Thus, the waiting room. So 45 minutes later, I'm really kind of, Annoyed. I'll use the word annoyed. And I'm sure none of you have ever been here trying to wonder what is going on that my appointment isn't important um, to everybody else. But me. And so I eventually get back to the seat. The dentist sits down next to me. I know him. He's a friend. He says, it's been a wild day. Okay, so I think me-centric, Right? And I'm thinking, oh, okay, so something must have happened, like an emergency or whatever with a tooth. Like, but my tooth, I'm getting my permanent crown today. Um, and he says, yeah, one of the homeless people had a cardiac event. And we went out to help, and I helped, you know, do some, he told me what he did, and it kind of, I'm kind of like going, oh, my word. And, and, the ambulance came and they refused help and all these things were happening and he goes, and I, and I don't know what to do. I don't know because they wouldn't get in the ambulance and, and so we're sitting there and I'm, I'm literally look, sitting in the chair thinking, oh no, now I feel really guilty. Now I'm, I'm like, I'm this annoyed, entitled SOB sitting in the, in, the, um, in the waiting room and he's out helping this homeless person, right? So I, I had to deal with those emotions. Um, and then we're sitting there and out the window, literally out the window across an alley, this person that he had just helped went and sat down and leaned up against a building and was looking right at the building. And he looks at me and I look at him and he goes, that's the person. And so I'm sitting, we're sitting and we watch, they're breathing, they're, but they're slumped over. And he goes, I wish they would just get help. I don't know how to help. And his helplessness of, he did help. He did what he could do. And yet there's this feeling of that person needs more. And I've been there and I know what he feels. And I, and I, and you, and we were, and I'm, again, the irony of me getting a permanent crown, um, it was not lost on me. This idea that I'm there for something that that person will never probably have. Help. And so as you sit there and you think, you hear these stories, and I, it, they're countless. 
There are people everywhere. We drive by them all the time. We experience them in our neighborhoods. We experience them in our families. We experience them everywhere. But also the other side of that is true. If you read this story only through the lens of I'm the good Samaritan, or if you read this story only through the lens of I'm the one that walked by, or if you only read this story through the lens of I'm the victim, you've missed the point of the story. The point of the story is you're all of those. The lawyer for sure knew the answer to the question and the answer to the question was only the people in the covenant. And what he said to him broke apart the whole idea of our preconceived ideas and our prejudices to break open the idea that humanity is humanity. There were no identifying features on the victim. No one knew whether he was Jewish or not. Again, this is a story and it was meant to bring and expose our own prejudice. And even for the victim to receive help from his enemy. Who was his neighbor? His enemy. Who's your neighbor? It's an interesting word that's used here to describe what promoted the action of the Samaritan. Saw, he saw, and he felt something. The word that is used in the NIV is pity. The word is better translate compassion. He felt compassion. And so he moved on the compassion, that is, when we stop feeling compassion for other humans, our propensity to do anything goes away. And so this is where, in, this is how we dehumanize the other person, is that, oh, they must have made some bad choices. This is how Kevin justifies it. They must have made some bad choices, so they're sitting in their bad choices. If God said that to me, oh, I'm just gonna let you sit in your bad choices. I'm not gonna act on your behalf because you made this choice about this thing and so you just get to sit there. There's no grace for you. There's no mercy for you. There's nothing for you. I have nothing for you. Do you know how screwed I'd be? No, really. But yet I can take that that logic and apply it to other humans without seeing, without seeing how hypocritical that is. You wonder how people can be hypocritical. It's easy. And so we're invited into this idea. We're invited into this story. I want you to sit in the story and see the compassion of the, the Samaritan. I want you to see the generosity of him. I want you to see his mercy. I want you to see his kindness and his availability. And I also want to see that you, that is all part of who we are when we bring heaven. But we all have the potential not to.
I wonder if we even hear it anymore. I was, um, and this is just, I want you to see how grace enters in to the most horrific places. I get, um, what touches my heart the most, and it brings tears to me now, I, as I've gotten older, I, for whatever reason, cry much easier. Um, because God has softened my heart over the years. And so when I watched and heard the stories of what happened up in Maine, the beauty of heaven in those moments is this, is when somebody covers somebody else to protect them from the gunfire. That's heaven in that moment. That's giving of one's life for somebody else's. That is to disregard my own need for the needs of others. Heaven enters that moment. It's the gospel when you hear it and when you see it. It's when mothers cover their children. It's when, when um, people try to rescue those that are victims of a moment. You hear the gospel, you see the gospel, and it should invoke something in you of, I've experienced this from God. And it brings, it makes me weep. That's neighboring. And when I miss it, when I can't see it, when I can't see heaven in the midst of all of those things, like even when in the, in the, the war-torn places, you see the gospel. That's how I know God's there. That's how I know it's, it's not just the violence. It's the moments of, of sacrifice for the sake of other humans that you get to see the gospel. You get to see God in the worst places. Because people ask, where is he? That's where he is. Don't miss it. Because you will lose your hope if you miss it. And you will become numb if you miss it. So see it. And it brings perspective to the annoyances of our lives. So we're invited into loving our neighbors. We are invited because because we're supposed to. If you hear this as, oh yeah, Kevin's up there saying, I'm supposed to love my neighbor. I don't care if you love your neighbor or not. But if you're gonna be a part of a community of Jesus followers, 
the implication is, is that you're going to love your neighbor. It's, it's not because it's a rule or a law. It's because it's the overflow of the heart of Jesus. It's because it's the overflow of the heart of God. It is, it is this idea. It's one of the great lessons of the book of Genesis in chapter 1 is that God created us in such a way that we would be blessings to this planet and to this creation and to each other, that we would partner with God to bring heaven to the creations. What a privilege. It's not an obligation. It's a privilege that we get to bring heaven to creation. We get to bring heaven to people. And there are days I suck at that. I always need fresh eyes to see people and to be a better neighbor. But here's the truth. We're about to enter into an experience around the table. And we talk about this endlessly as a church, and I just want you to experience it in its fullness today. Is that you're invited to the table because whether you walk by people, you're invited to the table. Whether or not you're a victim, you're invited to the table. Whether or not you are a person who stops every time, you're invited to the table because the prerequisite to coming to the table is being human. And we are every part of that, every piece of that. And you come to the table because that's where Jesus is. And there's the reminder. The reminder is all your prejudice fades away. All your conditions fades away. All your scarcity fades away. All the excuses and all the justification fades away because you come to the table and he says, look, I gave it all for you so that you might know life. <laughs> and he says, come and eat with me. Come and celebrate with me. Come and, come and know that the God who made you walk this earth and died a horrendous life so that you might know what it is to live. And he would know what it's like to be human. It's so good. And when I lose my way and I'm not worthy of being your neighbor, I'm welcome at the table. And when I lose my way and I walk by somebody in need, I'm welcome at the table. And when I'm beaten and no one knows who I am and I'm the victim, I'm welcome at the table. And when I am at my best, and full of self-righteousness. <laughs> I'm welcome at the table. My friends, you're welcome at the table. And with that, I'm gonna ask if, Tim, would you flip the lights up so we can see one another? Thanks. Sometimes it's just easy to be in the dark. <laughs> And not be seen. And usually we do communion in a solemn way. Today we're going to do it in a big way. Um, Ellen, would you come up? Thanks. I am going to demonstrate for you what I'd like to see happen. Come on up, all the way up. 
This is the fun part. At the tables, there's four tables around the room. And um, I'd like you to serve each other. So go to the table of your choice. Doesn't matter which table. And there's little cups. There's bread. There's different things. And I would like it to be a human interaction where you actually talk to each other. Um, because part of neighboring is knowing. Yeah. I'm Kevin. I'm Ellen. Nice to nice meet you, too. Um, can I serve you? Would you like, please take a piece of bread and uh, I'll pour you some juice. And then you would reciprocate. Then I turn to the person behind me? You could. We, it doesn't matter. Or do I do it to you? You could do it to me. Oh, okay. It doesn't matter. It's just that I want everyone to be served. And I want you to know a name. Okay. But be human. There could prompt a conversation. And with you, Ellen, that's a good possibility. Yes. Right? Yes. Because coming to the table was never meant to be an individual thing. It was meant to be a community thing. And it is to know that you're going to be introduced to a victim, a person that walks by, a good Samaritan. But you don't know which. And at the table, it doesn't matter because we're all welcome at the table. Thanks, Alan. You're welcome. Appreciate it. And then one other thing I would ask you to do. There's some papers and pens at the table. This is, I'm, I'm asking you to do this for me. Um, we pray every week over prayers of people. And you can write a prayer. That'd be great. There's baskets there. But if you could write down on the piece of paper the people that you struggle the most with to stop and help, that would be helpful. And this is why. We want to be a community where everyone is welcome at the table. And if I know our struggles, I can pray for those struggles. Mine is, I would write down, and I wrote it down on, in the first gathering, is people who make bad choices. That's more than one word. But yours might be Republican, Democrat. Might be politician. It might be somebody with a sign in their yard. It, fill out the blank, whatever you might want to put in there. But it'd be helpful for us as a community to pray for the people that we don't see because we don't see them anymore. And they're welcome at the table. So if you could exchange communion, um, bring it back to your seat, that'd be great. That would allow the tables to be freed up for more people to gather around and take it on your own.